now places are finding that they have affordability challenges even for you know moderate income mm-hmm. workers, and it's just become a problem that affects you know quote unquote normal people in quote unquote normal places. So it's not just the super hot markets or the extremely low income anymore. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Bernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks. My co-host today is Kate Meese, the Executive Director of the Local Government Commission. Hi, Kate. Hi, thanks for having me, Mike. Always a pleasure, Kate. And our guest today is Sasha Haswell, and Sasha is the State and Local Policy Director for Grounded Solutions Network. Sasha, welcome. Thank you. So, Sasha, I always like to try to give our listeners a little understanding of who the person is that they're listening to. So, could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up working on affordable housing issues and you know why that motivates you? Sure. So, the long story is that I started off working in foster care. And a lot of the kids who I was looking after in foster care were trying to be reunited with their families, but their parents were not able to find housing. So their parents are trapped in shelters and the kids are trapped in foster care. And I just realized that it was a sort of an underlying issue that was keeping families apart. So I went back to school and I went to school for public policy with a focus on housing. And after that, I wound up working in the mayor's office of housing in San Francisco doing housing policy work for a number of years. Fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about some of the major tools that cities are using to ensure that there is a supply of affordable housing to make sure that families can stay together and and live where they want to live? Sure. So as you probably know, it's becoming more and more difficult for municipalities to really tackle their affordable housing issues. And it's for a couple of reasons. One is that federal resources are waning. Um, and that's been going on for a long time, but will probably continue to happen and probably in a more dramatic way under the current administration. The other reason is that housing prices are rising a lot faster than wages. So To address it, I think we're seeing a range of different solutions. There's definitely no one silver bullet, and the most successful jurisdictions adopt a number of different policies in concert with each other. One of them is inclusionary housing. Another really important policy, I'd say, is having a local housing trust fund. Renter protections and tenant protections is one policy to help retain affordability for people who are in a sort of what we call a naturally affordable rental unit but one where they might be evicted or where rents could potentially be raised really quickly. So there are many others, but those are three that jump to mind right away. Great. Yes, certainly a a major challenge. I read a study that said that there isn't a county anywhere in the nation that can fill all of its low-income population need for affordable housing. So, you know, this is certainly a major challenge. You talked about... Can you say... 
in the entire country there is not one county? That's what this study said. I mean, certainly we see that there's an uh, affordability uh, challenge in a number of communities, and we know it's not just New York and San Francisco that we're seeing this in rural communities as well. We're seeing this here in St. Louis, and that surprised me because, you know, it's it's a more affordable place to live, but compared to supply and wages, I mean, uh, you have to look at all those factors. I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's kind of almost a breathtaking statistic, yep. right? Yep, it is. And I think the thing that's even more breathtaking about it is that, you know, historically, most municipalities have had a big challenge with providing housing that's affordable to the very lowest income people, right. you know, the seniors who are living off of Social Security or people with disabilities. But now places are finding that they have affordability challenges even for, you know, moderate income mm-hmm. workers. And it's just become a problem that affects, you know, quote unquote, normal people and quote unquote, normal places. So it's not just the super hot markets or the extremely low income anymore. That's right. And we, you talked about a a number of strategies and we've definitely seen at the local government commission inclusionary zoning as one of the core strategies communities are using. For listeners that may not be familiar with what inclusionary zoning is, can you talk a little bit about how that's used? Absolutely. So inclusionary housing or inclusionary zoning, which are pretty synonymous. I use the word inclusionary housing because it doesn't always live in your zoning code, but it's very commonly referred to as inclusionary zoning. So that can become confusing. It's a locally adopted policy that either encourages or requires that developers include below market rate and income targeted units within their building. So you'll notice I'm not calling them affordable housing units, and I'll probably revert back to that language at some point. But the reason I don't call them affordable housing units is that when you say affordable housing, people have a certain image of their in their mind of what that looks like, right? That looks like a project that's serving, you know, very low income single mothers or something. Inclusionary housing programs are really variable in who they serve. So they might serve somebody who is earning 50% or half of the average area median income, or they might serve people who are right at the average median income um, or moderate income people. So I, in either case, it's an inclusionary housing program. If those affordable units are inside of regular market rate developments as just a small portion of the total units. And so what kind of, um, does the burden fall strictly on the developer? Or is there some kind of incentive to the developer to do this? So that's a very good question and one that economists debate about endlessly. I guess there are two ways of answering. One is to say, yes, almost all programs include incentives for developers to participate. And that's the case even if it's a required program. So a program might say, okay, all developers in our community from now forward must have 10% of their units on site as affordable to people at 80% of the median income. And we're going to give all of you developers a fee waiver or a density bonus in exchange. By a density bonus, you mean they can build more units of housing? Exactly. So on the same parcel, on the same space of land, they can build up or they can build closer to the edges of that parcel in order to be able to get more units out of it. The second way of answering your question is a much more wonky technical economics explanation, which is that the cost of inclusionary housing is not mostly borne by developers over the long run. 
over the long run, the cost of inclusionary housing is borne primarily by landowners, which is a little bit confusing until you think about the fact that almost all construction costs and development costs are fixed, except for the price of land. So when developers are going to see less revenue coming in, because some of their units are going to be priced at a lower price point, then they're going to want to negotiate down for land. And if all developers in a municipality are facing the same policy, then all of them are going to pay just a little bit less for the same parcel of land. Interesting. So I can see that where this would be really super valuable, we start to get some new housing units. But as soon as that house gets sold once or that unit gets sold once, the benefit of the value of that property is going to the first buyer, if you will. So in terms of long-term housing affordability within a community, is this much of an impact on housing affordability or is it kind of a short term? That's also a really, really good question because it's in the early days of inclusionary housing and inclusionary has been around since the 1970s. So it's not like a new cutting edge policy. It's actually a policy that we know a lot about. Early policies did just that. You know, they had really short terms of affordability restrictions and it meant that the first homeowner could sell at a market rate, or the rental unit would only stay affordable for 15 years. Now, that's usually not the case, actually. Usually, you'll have um, rental units that are affordable for 30 or 50 years, or even the life of the building. And the homeownership units, similarly, every owner has to sell at a reduced price point, and and programs vary in terms of how they calculate what that price point is. Sometimes it's to a family of the equivalent income level. Sometimes the program will allow that first family or the second family to recoup more of the equity and the growth and value of the unit. It just depends on the goals of the program. The overarching, I'd say, takeaway point that I want to leave you with is that it is really important to have long terms of affordability on inclusionary housing units especially because you're only getting a few units per building, realistically. It's a small portion of the overall housing stock. And if you're always losing those units, you know, every five or 15 years, then just as you say, you know, it doesn't actually contribute to the overall affordability of the community over the long run. So in thinking about inclusionary housing, you know, the market rate piece of the housing will often bear the weight of that. And there are incentives like density bonuses that can help a project pencil out better by, you know, having more units. But I'm curious to hear how that plays out differently in markets that may not have as strong a housing market and may not be able to pass on higher cost for the the market rate units to make up for some of the affordable housing units. And I know you've worked in very different cities, cities from New York that has, you know, a high demand for housing, very strong market to cities like Detroit that don't have as strong a market. So how do you have to think of inclusionary housing and other affordable housing strategies differently in strong versus weaker up and coming markets? Mm -hmm. And that's a really timely question because right now inclusionary is being considered by different types of places than it used to, right? Inclusionary used to be a policy that was most attractive to hot markets and to really strong suburban markets, sometimes to college towns. And we are seeing a lot more mixed market cities or moderate and soft market cities like Detroit or like Pittsburgh interested in inclusionary because they're also facing affordability challenges. So as I said, the cost is not 
in the long run, it's not borne by the developer, and it's also not borne by the tenants or the owners. And the reason for that is that tenants and owners in most markets have a lot of housing choices, right? One building is one of a number of different places that they're probably shopping for housing in. They could live a few blocks away in an existing house, or they could buy this new house. That means that it's sort of is a, it's a buyer's market. And maybe I'm not using that word quite correctly, but the developers are price takers in most housing markets rather than price setters. However, there's only so much negotiating for land that you can do as a developer. And developers in really hot markets will tell you, well, People are sitting on their land because they think that it's worth more than it's actually worth, and I can't buy a parcel anywhere to build on. So inclusionary housing, if it creates a situation where the developers can't bargain down enough for land to still make their project pencil, won't build. I think this is a a very real but also theoretical risk. The best economic studies on inclusionary have found a very small effect either on the rate of development or on prices. So I think in some cases, the risk of this happening can be a little bit exaggerated. That said, I think it's absolutely critical that any policymaker considering adopting an inclusionary housing policy have an objective consultant conduct a financial feasibility study of what is possible in their market to make sure that there's no deterrent effect. Great advice. It also seems like there might be, you're talking about it's now being viewed in you know down markets, markets where the real estate values aren't quite as high. It also seems like it would be a less effective tool because at some level what you're saying is it costs so much to build a housing unit, it's the land. And at some point the land values are going to be low enough that there's just not enough to squeeze out of the land value. There might be people who just can't afford the house itself, let alone the land. So it seems like it would be a less effective tool in some of those markets. Is that reasonable or that's completely reasonable and true if there isn't very much development happening or if it's a very soft market inclusionary housing probably isn't going to create a lot of affordable housing units because your financial feasibility study is going to say well your your land prices are low your profit margins are small and if you are going to impose an affordable housing requirement or ask developers to include some level of affordability in their building, you're going to have to do it in a way that is very modest, right? You're going to have to ask for maybe 5% of those units to be affordable and to offset those costs with local benefits. If density isn't an incredible, isn't a valuable benefit, then maybe parking reductions or maybe tax abatements can be helpful. So there are ways of providing incentives to offset the cost, but in a very soft market, I think as a generalization, you're not going to get as much out of the program as in a stronger market, which again makes the need for those long affordability terms even more important. We've seen a really interesting kind of different take on this where strong coastal cities are actually using this as a no-growth strategy. So they're saying we want 100% affordable coming in, and, oh, it doesn't pencil out. Well, sorry, Oops. you can't develop here. Oops. <laughs> right. So it, it's an interesting, you are walking a tightrope here, right, where you do want to encourage growth. You want to encourage the right type of growth. You want to encourage it in the in the right places, and you want to make it accessible to, you know, the diversity of the community that you represent. 
Yeah. And that use of inclusionary housing makes me frustrated because it gives inclusionary a bad name. And it really, it doesn't use the policy tool for the purpose that it is made for. It uses it as a block to development, which is very counterproductive for affordability. I wonder if there's some way that, this is probably way off topic here, but I wonder if there's some way that communities could use somehow incentivize, come up with some other source of revenue to incentivize the inclusionary zoning, maybe out of their commercial zoning, right, as opposed to, I think the problem is that in a lot of markets, the housing market is in competition with other types of real estate. Mm -hmm. And is there any way that zoning policies are addressing that, right? So if I think about the San Francisco Bay Area, I think there are places like Emeryville that seems to have a lot of commercial as a percentage of their land base and a lot of retail, which probably from a tax perspective is great, and it probably benefits them. But in terms of they're serving the Bay Area housing needs, it's probably not accomplishing that. Is there anything else in the zoning, inclusionary zoning beyond just incentives to developers that can incentivize more housing creation? Yeah. So there, again, there are a couple of different ways that I can answer that. One is that it's pretty common in local zoning codes to have a housing designation or a commercial designation. So it's not always the case that commercial developers and housing developers are competing for the same parcel. At the same time, I'd say ultimately you want the quote-unquote highest and best use to go on that land. And if the highest and best use is housing, then you want to incentivize housing. So, But the question is, how do you determine what's the highest and best use? (laughs) <laughs> that's subjective. <laughs> I think that's what planners are for. And I'm not, I'm not a planner. I think there's probably some incentive built into the lo- how taxes and how local municipalities fund themselves mm-hmm. that makes certain uses from a fiscal standpoint a higher and better use than other. It's maybe, you know, what you're saying is it's subjective and it depends on the lens you're looking through. That's right. And I, exactly. So if you want tax revenue, <laughs> then Commercial is probably what you want to attract, but if you're having a housing affordability crisis, then you want more housing. But let me, let me answer your question in a slightly different way, which is that there are programs that are called impact fee programs that apply to both commercial and residential, or they can apply strictly to commercial. And those programs basically pose a fee on any new development, regardless of the type, and then use that fee to help subsidize housing for people of lower incomes. So that would be a way of getting some resources for affordable housing investments that falls on all development activity rather than just housing development activity. The third thing I'll say is that about 80% of the inclusionary housing programs nationwide are mandatory required participation programs. And the reason for that isn't because policymakers like really love using a stick. It's because over and over again, voluntary programs have proven relatively ineffective at getting any units. So in some few cases, jurisdictions have been able to cobble together enough of an incentive package that developers will voluntarily opt in. You know, Austin has some good examples of this, and there are some really great strong density bonus programs where the developers receive a significant level of density in exchange for affordability. 
But most of the time, what we've seen is that the, the municipality really can't come up with enough incentives that developers will opt into a program that not only has financial implications, but also has management implications and can honestly be something that is just foreign and uncomfortable for developers who haven't worked with a program like this before. At the risk of taking this in a, in a very different direction, I, I think about an interesting comment that was made at the Affordable Housing Plenary here yesterday at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference. And one of our keynote speakers was reminiscing about a conversation she had where she was talking about her work and someone said, well, why should I care about affordable housing? And why should it be easy? Why should people get to live where they want to live? Why shouldn't, what's the issue with them having to drive far away to get to their job and, you know, maybe they should have uh, additional challenges so they work harder. And, you know, I, I have a very visceral reaction to that kind of statement and sentiment myself, but we're going to be having more conversations like that because we are in a very different era that that are opening up these sorts of dialogues. So, you know, I think our listeners would likely understand the value of affordable housing, but they may be in these conversations. So so what would you say to them for why affordable housing matters for people that already have housing? Why should they care about this issue? Sure. So there are, I'd say, ecological benefits, economic benefits, and social benefits, right? So the ecological benefits are that if people have to drive really far from some very far out suburb into their job in the city, then it's polluting the air for all of us. And that's something that isn't just impacting that family that has to drive. If you're empathetic, you might feel bad that they have to drive for two hours to get to their job. But regardless, the Economic benefit is that there are businesses that need employees of all wage levels everywhere, especially in job centers like the urban core where housing tends to be more expensive and less possible for those lower wage workers to afford. So businesses need affordable housing in order to be able to survive because they need to be able to pay their workers a level that the business can actually feasibly make happen given what their revenue stream looks like. The third reason, the social benefit, is that we know concentrated poverty leads to bad outcomes for kids. And if you have all of the kids who are of the lowest income all living together in a far-out place, then we know that those kids are going to grow up to have poor academic achievement, poor economic outcomes, and poor health outcomes, which is bad, again, for our infrastructure, our hospitals, and our economy. Yeah, I think there's there's some, an underlying piece to that question that's kind of implies just like leave the free market to itself, which is... A fallacy that unaffordable housing is the result of just free market activity, right? The city of San Francisco has an incredible affordable housing problem because they incentivized the movement of tech companies into San Francisco, right? So they incentivized and increased the employment increase in San Francisco is ridiculous. Like, I'm going to say 100,000 new jobs in San Francisco. It's probably the wrong number, but on a scale, and then they built like 5,000 housing units to match up to that, right? So there were policy decisions that made the housing unaffordable, there is no absence of policy decisions. They're just different policy decisions. And they they favor or disfavor certain people, right? So the whole notion of just leave the market alone and some people will just have to pay more or drive further, 
there are policy decisions that created that dynamic. It didn't just happen by itself. Right. And I think the other thing to think about when you're thinking about places like San Francisco and New York is that they are facing a global market of potential buyers. And most cities don't have that kind of international investment interest or that scale of it. So I don't think that St. Louis needs to worry about becoming San Francisco. And I don't think that St. Louis needs to look at San Francisco and say, oh, their housing policies failed, so we're not going to use those. San Francisco and New York and, you know, a couple of other places are pretty distinctive in terms of what demand looks like. And I wouldn't leave that part of the picture out and say that they've been unsuccessful purely because of the choices that they've made around housing. So most of our listeners are probably from much smaller communities. Do you have any advice for smaller communities for where to even get started on this conversation around affordable housing, whether you're a nonprofit leader, a local government staff, a concerned citizen? What's the first step you can take? Well, if you're especially interested in inclusionary housing, there is a website that Grounded Solutions built called inclusionaryhousing.org, and we think that it is the go-to resource for people who want to learn more. So one direction that I thought you were taking this question in is how can people who are in smaller municipalities imagine adopting a policy that is as complex as inclusionary housing, and what is your advice to them? That's part of it. It's just what's the, <laughs> what's the first step, because it, that's huge, right? And smaller communities may not have sophisticated staff that can take something like that on or funding to update their zoning codes or right. tackle something like that. Right, and I think that there are... A lot of nonprofit intermediaries out there like Grounded Solutions who have it in their mission to help municipalities like that. And so, you know, for anybody who's not inclined to be doing a lot of Googling around, you know, what are all of the best just cause eviction policies or what have you, there's help out there in the form of real humans who've been doing this work for a while. And I think just picking up the phone and calling an organization like Grounded Solutions or Policy Link or the National Low Income Housing Coalition, that can be a, a great first step. I also think it's really important. You talk about inclusionary zoning. I think it's just important for people to understand zoning in general, the decisions that are made in the comprehensive planning process, what land you zone as what for what uses, has a huge impact on housing prices. And I don't know that enough of that is considered during the zoning and planning process that occurs normally. I don't know that they're giving adequate consideration to how do these decisions that we're making actually impact housing prices as opposed to how we want the community to physically look. Right. You know, the term inclusionary housing came out of a reaction against exclusionary housing policies, which really is about zoning. Zoning for very large parcels where you can only have a big single-family home built there. And if you zone like that, then all of your housing is going to be unaffordable and your community will be exclusive. So I completely agree that zoning choices not only in terms of inclusionary zoning, but in terms of, you know, your parcel size and your density allowance and your parking requirements are all very influential in terms of what types of housing and what affordability levels are being served in your community. And we've often seen that planning documents aren't aligned with zoning code. So you may have a great vision in your general plan or your comprehensive plan, 
The community comes out. They say we want a more walkable downtown. We want to revitalize our downtown. And then developers come. They want to build product like that. They want to build affordable housing in a downtown walkable environment. And they find out it's illegal because they're not allowing for mixed use, for example. We hear that all the time. So, you know, a lot of public gets engaged in the planning process but don't know to look to see if the zoning aligns with that planning process. That's right. And I think that's, I mean, that's really the intersection of smart growth and affordable housing as two sort of adjacent fields of expertise. And I think it's one of the reasons that this conference is so exciting is that it brings together all of the different types of planners who need to sit at the table together in order to make those kinds of holistic planning decisions. So Sasha, how can people learn more about your work? They can go to groundedsolutions.org. We have a website. We are a relatively new organization, so our website is still relatively spare, but they can, they can also be directed through our website to the websites of our um, prior organizations. We're actually the result of a merger between Cornerstone Partnership and the National Community Land Trust Network, if anybody out there is familiar with one of those two organizations. And they can find contact information on our website if they want to reach out to me or anybody else. Fantastic. Sasha, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for all the great work that you do. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.